This is strange, isn't it? Just one of those peculiar chances. Um, that's all. I, I didn't know who he was. Just a coincidence, pure coincidence, that's all. That's Pauling. The coincidence she is talking about concerns a book, The Siege of Krishnapur, by J.G. Farrell. That's my abiding thought of that book. I can't believe that someone would eat a beetle, even in stress, so it shows people will do anything. <laughs> I loved it. It's a lovely book. She read the book back in the August of 1979. The next week, Pauline and her children went for a walk on the Sheep's Head Peninsula. We were there merely that day because we used to go to what he, we called the Secret Valley because it's an end of the peninsula where there's nothing but peat diggings for, for a couple of, two or three miles. On the edge of the shore, there was a man sea fishing off a rock. Unusual to see anybody down here. Normally there's nobody around down here. We walk along the rocks and there's some man fishing off rocks. I, I didn't know who he was. Um, I just assumed he was sort of 40s. Slender man, uh, about to cast. Could have been anybody. I had no idea who he was. And while I'm just turning around to do something else, um, they yelled, he's fallen in the water. Waves taken him in the water. And then I saw him in the water. I mean, it was just so incredible to see somebody just floating about in the, wa in the water, just his head. That's all. I screamed at them and said that I wouldn't... I'm going down to see if I can reach him, see if I can reach him with my jacket. But, of course, then, then they really started to yell. That's when the, all the screaming and shouting started. Don't, don't go down there, Mummy. Um, and I went down just to go down the ledge. And he'd have seen me starting to climb down the rock. And he obviously thought that I was going to get in the water. But he saw that I was going to come down, that there were three children there. There was a fair chance of one of, uh, one of those boys coming down after me. He saw the situation. Knew it would, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to get him, and we'd both get drowned. And he looked at me. He looked at the boys, and he just went under. Just went under. The man in the water was the author the Siege of Krishnapur, J.G. Farrell. He'd been only living in West Cork for 149 days. This is the story of that time. Everything is just in a small piece of time and there's nothing you can do about it, nothing.
I, I remember the, the day he arrived, now coming to think of it, he arrived, uh, I think, about two days before his uh, his furniture came. And his furniture and his wine arrived at the same time. James Gordon Farrell moved to Kilcrohan on the Sheep's Head Peninsula in late March 1979. Anybody that comes into the area, the first thing that people wonder as we're small, everybody know what's happening in the area, uh, who has bought the property where we call it, we're in the Bantry Bay site, here a small little half a dozen houses. We were very curious about the, a writer coming into our midst. Farrell was 44 years of age, author of the renowned Empire Trilogy, the winner of the Booker Prize, and for the first time in his life, the owner of a home. When he bought it, it was totally covered with ivy. You could just, just see the chimneys. And I think this kind of attracted him that um, that this was kind of symbolic in some way, that he was going to make something out of it. And it was kind of, it was a bit like an immigrant, I felt, an immigrant returning to his, um, to his roots. The department says a strike next week would stop all mail as well as counter services in all main post offices and all phone calls, home and international, which need the services of an operator. But in 1979, there was a postal strike and petrol rationing. At home, motorists are still queuing for petrol despite the higher prices. The decision after a two-hour private debate was unanimous as expected. An emergency resolution asks sections of the engineering union to withdraw those services being used by government and business in an attempt to defeat the 16 weeks old strike. I, I'm not quite sure if if he was a little bit overwhelmed by the move when, when it actually came, that he had been cut off, because uh, it, it was a very isolated place. He didn't have a telephone over there at the time, so he was quite isolated. It had been quite the journey to Kilcrohan, taking in India, the Arctic, Oxford and Paris, to name but a few. These are stories, though, for another time. This is by way of a signal rocket to let you know that I'm still alive despite this never-ending postal strike and a petrol shortage. Well, so far things have not been going too badly and I'm beginning to feel at home here. A move is hard work at my advanced age, but I seem to have settled in okay and so far I've not missed London. It's extremely beautiful here and very peaceful. Sometimes I said, is this a diversion? Shouldn't you be writing? And he said, no, 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 I've plenty time for it. This is Jerry O'Mahony. He sold J.G. Farrell the house and back then was in the process of renovating it. He'd always offer to make you tea or, or have a glass of wine. Uh, maybe it was just an excuse for himself to have a glass, I'm not quite sure, but, but he was, he was, um, that was the kind of guy he was. That if, if you called, you, were, you certainly didn't, he didn't um, talk to you at the door. You had, to, you had to go in and sit down. And usually you wound up talking for maybe two hours or, or whatever. Like. The first time I, I saw him was, uh, he was he was in his laneway and uh, I saluted him. The, the first time I met him was over at his residence, uh, which he had purchased the name as Gurfahan. There I, I rapped at the door and I gave him the fish and I remember to the pollock I gave him. This is Jerry Daly. His farm sits on a hill about a mile away overlooking J.G. Farrell's home. My my uh, father and grandfather always fished down 
there a boat and they always fished out at the sea down by the cove and it was a tradition and it's still a tradition today we always give fish to our neighbours it doesn't matter whether they're new into the area or whether they're right or they're whoever they are we always take them around uh, and it's, uh, uh, if we get a, a fish we give them a sample of fresh fish he was asking me how did we cook it and I said traditionally here you fill it off you can boil it put a bit of shake a bit of ground, uh, brown flour and fright and it's beautiful I remember stopping with the tractor one day he was out by the road to um, uh, say hello to him so I stopped mainly to say did he like the fish and he uh, uh, he said they were lovely what he'd like to do was he said was to be able to catch them himself so I said you have to buy him he said what would he need and I said buy a fishing rod and you can catch them no bother down at the cove by this, uh, just down the lane where from his residence. Far as I remember, it was the weather was good, you know, and it was a real, it was a real tonic. It was a real tonic to be out there in, in fine weather. Uh, you don't, I, I'm sure you wouldn't. Um, the days are long at that time. Today, the sun is shining, the sea is sparkling, and all seems right with Kilcrahan, if not with the world. I plan to start serious work on my novel again next week. I remember he phoned up one evening um, in a panic. Um, a bees had... had, had uh, there was an old window in the back of the hall. It was bedroom upstairs, and the window was closed off, and there was a cavity in the wall inside the, the outer layer of stones, behind the outer layer of stones. It, it wasn't properly filled up, and a swarm of bees went in there. And on the inside of the wall it was a plasterboard, which was only a half inch thick. And of course, uh, the bees started um, buzzing quite loudly in the middle of the night. And he, it, it was quite near the, where the head of his bed was. And and this was a, he panicked at the thought that that the bees might come through at some stage. So he asked me because I used to keep the, I I kept bee, I was a beekeeper at the time. Um, could I take them out or what could I do? And I said, you know, if you, in the old um, custom here was that if it was unlucky to give away your, your swarm of bees if they came. He said, oh, OK. I forget whether the bees had arrived in a hole in the wall over the back door when you were here. I think not. This is considered a great piece of luck hereabouts. By a coincidence, Jerry had told me a couple of days earlier that he was about to purchase a swarm... It never occurred to me that he wouldn't be a beekeeper as well as everything else. And then I think after two or three days, the noise of the bees got, got too much, so I had to take them out for him. So he was going to keep bees in, and I, I put the bees in a box and, and put them by, by the apple trees. There are two large-scale bits of news. The first is I found a dead rat by the fireplace this morning. One has to nerve oneself up a bit to this sort of thing if one lives in the country, I suppose. So he he had a problem with rats at one stage, all right, and um, I think he got he 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 there was a dead rat somewhere, and he was kind of panicking at this. And I said, "There, this is the country. This is not London, so the rats don't have any disease." You know. I was telling him a story about um, when when the neighbours came into the old man who lived there before him, that the the rat came out of the wall one night and some one of the the men caught the rat by the tail and pulled off his tail so he, he, he you see this and then another part of that story was um when he used to put the fire on in the in the main room 
the smoke would go all along horizontally along the wall for about 20 or 30 metres and come out in his study and he found this intriguing but obviously the, the smoke was falling in old um, path that the rats had, had worn through the stones As you will see, this is the sort of corn-pone drama that fills my days while you sophisticated folk have such fancy items as the Jeremy Thorpe show Life is bliss here, despite rabbits that eat my crops and bees that have taken up residence in the hall of my bedroom. So what kind of Britain is it likely to be with Margaret Thatcher at the helm? Anthony Howard is former editor of The New Statesman. He's currently the day I flew over to visit him in Ireland was the day Margaret Thatcher was elected first as Prime Minister. This is Anne Kitts. Back then, she was Anne Colville. Which, of course, was something that just appalled Jim. I mean, the idea of Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister, he was just aghast. We talked about that a lot because he was so... I think the returns were coming in that night. Oh, I would have been 26, 27. And Jim was 13 years or 14 years older. We saw each other for on and off for years. I mean, Jim just, Jim loved women and women loved Jim. But anyway, and there was Jim and he had a little, I think it was a little blue car. I'd never thought of him as driving, so that was interesting. And we drove to the house. It it seemed very remote. He really was excited by it. He had this guy named Jerry who was doing the work, and he seemed to get on with him well. And he had some nice neighbours that we went to see. He loved being in the country, I think, and he liked the quiet, and I, I think he liked having his own place. It's, this is a stupid thing to say, but it's really hard to be a good writer like that. It is really, really hard work, and I don't think he had figured out how he could, you know, live and have a, for example, live in a house with a wife and children and and, and still write, you know? I, I think that was something, when he was really writing, he just wanted to be alone. And, I mean, I'd grown up with, with a, a father who was an artist, and, and he would go off and be alone in his studio but but we had a whole family rhythm, you know? I mean, the house was where we were four children, cat, dog, all kinds of stuff. And my father would go and he'd work and be away from us all. But then he'd come down and, you know, the whole family thing would go on. But I don't think Jim had kind of figured out how he was going how he could make that work. He once took care of my cat and he said, you know, it's such a distraction having a cat, isn't it? <laughs> But I think we did kind of talk about the fact that we couldn't imagine, you know, living together, that, you know, that that wasn't something that um, either of us kind of really thought was going to happen. He'd given me a copy of his book, Girl in the Head, to read on the plane on the way home. And he'd made some kind of deprecating remarks about the book, and we talked about that a bit. Um, We were not (laughs) expecting never to see each other again, you know? 
he went and he purchased the new fishing rod, uh, all the tackle with it, everything, all brand new. And I met him uh, about a week later and uh, I said, how do you get on with the, did you try for any fish? And he said, I've been down on a couple of occasions and I've tried, and not even one. He said, I mustn't have the right gear or I mustn't have the, uh, the right knack of catching the fish. Anyone can catch fish down there. I said to him, once you're fishing the right spot, where were you fishing? And he said, just on the slipway. Well, I said, you might as well try there in the kitchen sink. I'll take you down one of the days and I'll take you over to a, a, a one rock in particular and I'll show it to you. Uh, it's called Conagrahog. He was getting very depressed um, on, on, the, on the fishing front because uh, April and May is the time of the year when fish are very scarce and he figured that he, he, he was using the wrong technique. So... So I took him down and we went down. He he had fish with the rod before, uh, as I said, over by the plat, so he had no bother in, in casting out. What I uh, was uh, very concerned about was uh, the the rocks. They're quite slippery and, and, and dangerous. And uh, I was I remember uh, uh, saying to him, just sit up further before we'll start fishing, sit down and have a look for five minutes at the sea and see how it is. And I remember we caught, uh, uh, I caught three and he caught, caught one small little fella. And I said, you have no bother now, you can uh, um, um, try yourself. And he got a pollock, I, I remember he, uh, he told me the size, he was amazed the size he was catching. And he was absolutely delighted with his, with the, and that was the rock he went to all the time to fish. My book is at last making a little progress, though it has a rival now, viz. fishing off the rocks. I know no one is going to believe me, but I've actually been catching fish and eating them. Great fun and beats writing into a cocked hat. Then when, when, when the mackerel arrived in, he, was, he, he couldn't believe how he could go down. He could really li live off the land. It was mackerel every day. Spent about two hours every day fishing in the afternoon. I think it was his relaxation from about two to four. Fishing boat had caught him big, big time, and he he, he couldn't believe that you could uh, go fishing and that the afternoon would go by so quickly. I spend my evenings fishing off the rocks for mackerel and pollock, and an old grandpa seal who looks as if he's wearing a twenties bathing cap treads water 30 yards away and watches me with the air of someone who thinks he knows a better way of doing it. Minor disasters include the fact that the tractor that came up to rotivate the garden, which was full of brambles, broke the sewage pipe to the septic tank. It was a problem for a few days before we before he, he spotted the, the problem. Pretty, pretty, pretty foul smell and, and um, you know, he, 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 he was a little bit panicky about these small things, which was so rejoining from one, one person living in the house, so it wasn't like a main, a sewage main in a big city or something. I went out for a walk the other day and when I came back, a herd of cows was just polishing off the last of the cabbages.
They'd also trampled on some other stuff and nibbled at the pear trees I'd just planted. Um, he was quite annoyed about this, I remember, because this cabbage was very important. He was going to, he was going to keep him over the winter, but uh, the cows had other, had, had, had other ideas. I knew I was expected at a certain time, and I asked him what I could bring, and he said, well, I, I write on coffee, meaning as my fuel, and he said, if you could go to the Monmouth Street coffee place, now this is a, a, a real, it's, it's an extension of Neil's Yard, which is a famous old sort of natural foods, whole foods, organic foods place in London, and there's a little coffee place next to it, and he asked me, could I bring a bulk supply of a particular type of Colombian coffee beans? And so I simply doubled the quantity in my head, and I think it brought him something else. So my luggage was very spartan, except for a knapsack absolutely reeking of gorgeous coffee beans, which he would then grind. I felt I should declare the coffee beans, and there was a very, very young, fresh-faced young customs officer at Cork, and I went through the something to declare channel and he looked at me and he said what have you I said well I I brought these coffee beans it's a present for a friend I bought them and he said "Um, they're coffee beans where are they from again I said I I got them from London and he he looked quite pained he said I didn't think they grew it there and I said no no no, it was David Simpson would be the last person to stay with J.G. Farrell I was there for only a week precisely a week um when Jim uh, was showing me round his house, there was a study, a small study. It was quite bare, apart from books and things, and a typewriter. And I noticed on it that he had an electronic clock with lit-up numerals. And I think his were pink. And I had an identical clock to that um, in my flat in London, where the numerals were greenish-blue. And I said to him, I've got identical clock. It, it, uh, and I told him which shop I'd got it from. Because this was quite new at, in those days. I mean, digital clocks are everywhere now. But to have one that lit up, so you could see it if you woke up at night. You could see it on, on the dressing table, you know, some distance away. There were not big enough numbers. And there was a colon in between the hours and the minutes. And it flashed once per second. And Jim's didn't have the colon. And I said, but mine's got a flashing two dots between, you know, the hours and the minutes um, for the seconds, and it, you know, just so that you know it's, it's, it's working and all that. And Jim said, well, I didn't like the flashing. I felt I was watching my life ebbing away each time it flashed. So I took it to pieces and I took a piece of paper from the side of a book of stamps and I stuck it at the place where the colon would show through. I took him into the pub a few times in the White House bar. Uh, Friday evening was um, uh, when the old people uh, collected the pension. There was quite a good gathering and sing-song, and he enjoyed this. But he didn't sing. He he just listened in the background. I'm sure he took notes. (laughs) Over the course of the summer, Jerry O'Mahony and Jim Farrell had become good friends. Um, Jim came around and had tea with us often, and... uh, you know, he made faces at the kids and things. But he, he was he, he was an extremely shy, polite man, uh, is, is the way I'd, I'd, I'd describe him. Um, 
there was no, no, uh, no airs and graces at all to him. Over those couple of months, they watched each other working. Jerry renovating, Jim writing. He's, he, he, would say, he often said to me, he said, why don't you write a book? I mean, fellow, he was intrigued to think that you could be a beekeeper, uh, a builder, um, a deep sea diver, and a farmer, and all these, um, uh, this, this sort of intrigued him because he had, he had, um, he had, he had just the one pet, you know. I had studied a bit of English um, in college, and. Uh, I mean, writers were kind of remote people up to that point in my life. Um, you took a book out and you read it and you saw a bit about the character on the cover. Uh, it, it was kind of, it was refreshing and it was another, it, it gave you a great um, understanding and kind of awareness as to what a writer um, that writing a book wasn't that easy. That that you know you you could hit the wall and and that you'd have to get yourself out of the hole and and go on and finish it. Uh, this this was something that you know it was the first time that that had occurred to me. That being a writer is not an easy job. He was writing a book at at the time. And I think he had hit he hit a wall something around May or June that there were um, that uh, he he wasn't producing very much, um, and and I'd say he he spent a few weeks kind of um, a few weeks when 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 he when he was on, under the weather to put it that way, and then uh, I remember at some stage sort of towards the middle of July when he was in flying form again. I probably admired the man for, you know, what what what, what he was doing. I, I, um, I was fascinated by his um, lifestyle. That this, you know, you could, you could actually, um, you could actually make money without, without doing physically hard work. And, and he seemed to be getting by pretty good. Here was a man who, who had left the city and all the, the pluses of the city and could um, could um, survive. I, I I thought when he came first that that he probably survived for three or four months and 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 that, and and I could see uh, as the time went by that 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 um, that he was there for the long haul that he wasn't going to be a um, you know a passerby. Dear Rosemary, thanks for your note, read my new book. The day before he died, Jim Farrell wrote to his publisher. I haven't finally decided on the title and doubt if there's any point in announcing the book without it. I'm running a bit behind schedule, but I'm still confident that, barring some unforeseen disaster, I'll provide you with a novel of 80,000 to 100,000 words before the end of the year. The words, barring some unforeseen disaster, still jump off the page. But as soon as we got down to the top of the rocks, it was, you know, you, you could see the guy standing there, you know, just, just fishing, minding his own business. Um, so I, I guess as soon as we got down there, it was, you know, it was very obvious there was, there was someone standing there alone fishing. 
I guess I was probably 10 or 11 um, and he was just standing there completely isolated um, you know in, a, in, a, in an exceedingly desolate place just a, a, a man in his own world uh, a particularly large wave or swell came up um, you know they'd been lapping around his feet anyway although lapping's perhaps a slightly gentle way of putting them you know they, they, they were thrashing around one in particular as they do from time to time larger than the others came up and literally just swallowed him up as it were whether it actually went above his head I, I don't recollect I, I suspect it went pretty well all the way up his body you know the power of the sea um, just took him clean down the rocks seemed to be being sucked further from and then he seemed to come in a bit with a wave seemed to come in so that I could see him when I was I went down to a kind of plateau which is where the entrance is and JG was standing on a ledge there and there was a, a drop down and I sort of got down that drop he might be able to reach and I might be able to reach his hand that's all uh, it was a silly idea but you you can't be rational that quickly and the the overriding memory I have was what we what we were concerned about was that my mother would actually try and get in because she was a, a relatively strong swimmer and I can remember both of us um, having to dissuade her quite you know forcefully to get in. James was yelling at me not to go, screeching at me not to go, and what I'd intended to do was I started to climb down. I saw him. I looked at him and he looked at me, and I saw. Him. I saw that I, if I went down the rock, I thought I could take my jacket off and stand on the edge and hold on to a rock. And that's when they got panicky. Um, and, that's, and he looked at me, and I looked, looked across at him, and he just went under, didn't he? Just went under. J.G. Farrell's body was recovered six weeks later. He was buried in the cemetery of St. James's Church in Duras. Jerry O'Mahony and Jerry Daly carried his coffin. In, in some way that you you kind of, uh, in some way that I feel a, a bit responsible for what happened to him, you know. That that um, maybe if I if I hadn't. Um, Shown him hold. If I hadn't shown him the rock, um, uh, or uh, talked about fishing and taking him down, what if? But we can't uh, turn back the time. But then I started to read Jim's books all over again the big three books, um, Troubles, and then The Siege of Krishna Pool and then the Singapore crib. Edward said in somewhat sepulchral tones, they gave their lives for their king, their country, and for us. Let us remain silent for a moment in their name. Silence descended. There's so much of Jim in them. I found it a terrific comfort. And because they're so funny, it lightened the loss. So I was I was, uh, getting Jim back again, alive, on the page, if you like. 
Meanwhile, the Major was trying once again to delve into the past with the paralysed fingers of his memory, hoping to grasp some warmth or emotion. The name, perhaps, of a dead friend that might mean the beginning of grief, the beginning of an end to grief. But now, as he stood at the breakfast table, even the dead faces that nightly appeared in his dreams remained absent. Life is coincidence. Ultimately, it was a coincidence we were there. as unfortunate yeah. coincidence that we witnessed him falling into the sea. And it's a coincidence you walk into a bar. The coincidence that James is talking about refers to a book, The Siege of Krishnapur by J.G. Farrell. I can, I can remember going to watch the Stone Roses at Lancaster and the, the, you know, the, the spiral carpet, so yeah, that was the time. The, the college system at Lancaster was slightly different to um, most of the universities in the UK. It was a, a, a common room, sort of collegiate style, so a campus where there were ten bars on, on you know, one small restricted campus, which, as you can imagine, lends itself well to you know, people overdoing it. A friend of mine from university when I was at Lancaster who was um, from Afghanistan and I can remember seeing him in the bar one evening reading the siege of Krishnapur. Yeah, Jason was a, was a, 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 you know, a very good friend. He was, um, I mean, he was a very, a very, very well-read individual. Um, yeah, he, he liked it. He'd read, you know, Farrell's other books. Um, I don't think it was the first time he'd read this. Um... I just explained, you know, what what had happened, and um, I, to be honest, I think at that stage I didn't really know a great deal about Farrell. It, it you know, to me, it, it just seemed very peculiar, uh, you know, so far away from anything that had happened that there's, you know, there's the guy I know from the, you know, from the bar, sat with a book next to him, and um, yeah, you, you you see it, and the memories come back, and you think, wow, and uh, literally just said, you know. I, you, saw this guy, um, you know, drown when I lived in Ireland. I was in London a few years ago having dinner with some people and there was a poet there and she and I were talking and suddenly I realised from something she said that she also had been one of Jim's girlfriends. But you know what? We just smiled at each other and with a kind of recognition... And she said, oh, I love Jim. And I said, yes, I know. <laughs> so after this passing, I read the books. His, his books are, are they're not that easy to read. You, they, um, you can... You can you can you can take him at a superficial level and there's, there's a much deeper level. And I think there was this was something about the man that you... You would have you you wouldn't get to this deep level, I think, for a long time. You you wouldn't you not six months would be would, would be too short a time to get to to know the workings of his mind. <laughs> 